Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. This is part two in a four-week Wednesday night class series called God's Purpose for Sex and Marriage. The content in this lesson is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Last week, we talked about ancient perspectives of sex and sexuality, and we focused on what the perspective of men was. We looked at um, Deciphorus, who was the male prominent figure, the statue, the, the man of all men, right? Okay. And uh, the ideal was symmetry and restraint. Okay. So the, the man was seen as the dominant one of, of the couple, right? And one of the things that I want to clarify that I didn't really cover last week, um, it, when, we, when we talk about topics like homosexuality and the idea of sexual orientation, there was not necessarily during this period an, a, a discernment between different orientations. There were preferences for men or women, but they did not understand orientation the way that we do today, right? So you wouldn't have somebody who was described in the same way as we would describe them today as homosexual, okay? Or gay or lesbian. You might say they had a preference for one sex or the other. And there is documentation uh, in ancient literature about specific people that it actually says that, right? They preferred men or preferred boys or preferred women. That's important later for us. It's important when we, we have the conversation about Paul's comments on uh, homosexuality. And um, we'll get into that a little bit further. But I want to make that clear um, that a man was someone who was the dominant figure in the relationship, right? The one imposing himself on another. That was what defined manhood, okay? Whether it was a man, a boy, a woman, it didn't matter. He was the dominant figure in the relationship, and that is what defined their ideal manhood, okay? Now, women on the other end were, were deemed as, as men with inverted genitalia, as we described last week, okay? Which is a very different perspective, but, but in some ways, no different than how we have discerned biology through, through the, the centuries, right? I mean, at one time, people with illnesses were seen as having evil spirits inside of them. And today we understand that differently as germs, that people are infected, okay? Back then, their idea of women, the way that they conceptualized the world was that they had inverted genitalia. So they were essentially an imperfect male. So they were an inferior, they were the inferior gender, okay? Um, Being the one who would be on the receiving end sexually, they perceived women to be weaker and unrestrained, right? Men were the pillars of restraint and women were the unrestrained. 
Therefore, there were stricter laws imposed on women. Sexual practices, uh, we talked about pederasty, uh, which we will talk more about later, but that was a a, a sexual relationship between an older man and a younger boy, um, and it was kind of elevated as the highest form of love by some of the philosophers of the day. Uh, And then also um, sexual practices included temple prostitution, which is likely some of what Paul is referring to when he talks about sexual immorality, okay? If you want to hear more on all of those topics, feel free to go and listen to the podcast that we uh, did from last week, okay? Um, So our understanding of Scripture is broadened by this understanding of the ancient world, the context within which Paul is writing admonishing people not to participate in the same practices as the people around them, as their Roman and Greek counterparts, okay? And we we talked about the idea of endogamy, which, does anybody remember what endogamy is? That's right, marrying within, yes. So like Jewish endogamy would be Jews marrying other Jews. The idea of intermarriage with other cultures and other people groups would have was was uh, discouraged within the Jewish culture. But by this period, there's been a, there's been a lot of intermarriage, right? But there is some of that endogamy in, that's brought into Christianity and in in the writings of Paul in terms of marriage, right? Just focusing on keeping Christian couples equally yoked language like that. So you see some of that endogamous influence. And so then we ended with Constantine and Eusebius. Now Eusebius was Constantine's historian. Constantine wanted to set himself up. He's a Roman emperor and he wants to set himself up as a Hezekiah figure. So he comes in and he wipes out the temples of not Asherah, Hezekiah. Yes. Constantine Aphrodite. That's right. I gave her the answer before she came. Uh, so the, wipe out the temple of Aphrodite. Now, why would they want to do that? They, why, would they, why would they take out Aphrodite? What was the purpose of that? Well, the people were primarily practicing worship of Aphrodite through sexual practices and temple prostitution. So Constantine's establishing Christianity as the centralized religion for Rome wants to go completely in the other direction and do something wholly different, okay? W-H-O. Okay, so you may not be able to read all of that, um, and don't worry if you can't. Um, A lot of this is just to kind of jog my memory, but... Tonight, we're going to talk about the, we're going to start in talking about the early church fathers. So this, these would be the folks following um, the apostles. They were the early writers of the Christian church. And most of what we're talking about happens around, begins around second century AD. All right. So um, during this time, there is a group that comes on the scene, they're called the Gnostics. All right? Now, 
the Gnostics believed that essentially anything in the flesh is bad or evil. Spirit is good. Okay? Now, there's some debate as to where Gnosticism originated. Did it originate with Christianity or did it come before? There are folks who have connected it to Eastern religions and with Alexander the Great's uh, implementation of Hellenism and bringing in and blending cultures that along with it came Eastern philosophies and Gnosticism came out of that. There's not really any way to know, but we do know that Gnosticism is very clearly associated with the early Christian church. Now, these were folks who their practices, their beliefs caused them to be deemed as heretics. But in terms of what Gnosticism was, there's not really a clear definition. The key need, though, according to Gnosticism, was knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that Jesus appeared but did not necessarily appear in the flesh. Now, this is a point of debate, too, among different Gnostic um, practitioners. But they, but they held this idea that Jesus didn't appear in the flesh, that he appeared in spirit. And he just looked as though he was in the flesh. Okay? The reason for that is the body, the flesh, is bad. And some fundamental teachings for the Gnostics were that the, that the creator of, like, earth was different than the Redeemer, God. That God was the greater deity and that there was a, another deity who created and created a world, a fallen world, a broken world, okay? So the debate was, could Jesus have come in the flesh or, or not? If he came in the flesh, he wasn't divine because flesh is bad. If he didn't come in the flesh, then he was defi- divine, but then we, we step into concepts like suffering and Jesus' suffering in the flesh and the importance of that to Christian tradition, Okay. I promise there's a reason I'm talking to you about Gnosticism. We'll get there. Is, is Gnosticism in the Holy Land, or is it all of Christendom, all of the Roman world? Like, is it practiced? Yes. Is it how large was it? There, I mean, there were there were sects of SECTS of Gnostics throughout Christendom. But um, primarily they kind of show up in, in Rome and Greece and those kind of areas, which fits with some of the philosophies of uh, the denial of the flesh. And I mean, it, it's not far off with what some of the Greek beliefs and, and um, philosophies of the day were. So, huh? They were the intellectuals. Yeah, exactly. They were the intellectuals. Um, okay. So there's Gnosticism, which everybody, you have an, uh, you're going to have an MDiv after we get done tonight, okay? Um, and then there's asceticism. And, and you might hear some of these words and it just like rolls off, rolls out of your mind and you're like, 
and especially tonight, why are we talking about Gnosticism and asceticism when we're talking about sex? And I'll, I'll get there. I'll tell you why it's important, but you need to understand these concepts first. Okay, so asceticism was really driven by early church fathers to be more holy, right? To be in, in deeper prayer, in deeper communion with God. And it's not extremely far off from some of the Gnostic beliefs, except for um, most people who practice asceticism would have considered Gnostics to be heretical or heretics. But it, it was a denial of the flesh in order to elevate the spirit. So practices like fasting and celibacy and uh, other more extreme types of things like beating oneself to, uh, to reflect Paul's um, idea of beating your body into submission. Those things also come on the scene. So you, you had... You had Gnostics who practiced asceticism and, cl- and claimed to be Christians, right? But these kinds of philosophies are starting to infiltrate the church. Okay? So the Gnostics are, cons- are be- begin around 200 AD to be declared as heretics. And then on, on the scene comes people practicing asceticism, spiritual Discipline, disciplining of the body in order to elevate the spirit. And there were people who were solely devoted to being ascetic in their practice and in doing so chose celibacy. Right? So they're practicing a form of self-denial. Uh, there's also uh, incretism, which is, is actually a specific Gnostic group who practiced asceticism. I won't go into that right now. Um, so around the same time, you have ideas like Proto-Evangelium of James. Okay, This is basically the belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin that Mary never had sex. Not only was she a virgin during, at the time of Jesus' birth, but that according to this, this was an apocryphal book, which means it was by some accepted as a biblical text, and by some it was not. But when was the uh, council, was it the Council of Nicaea? Yeah, Fourth century. century, Council of Nicaea. This doesn't make it in the canon. Okay? They voted, and the canon is what we know as our Bible today. They, they voted on which books historically were accepted by all churches, essentially. So this was not an accepted book. And you can go read some of these and understand why they didn't really get accepted into the, in, into the canon. It, doesn't, it didn't take rocket science to figure out which ones probably were not in line. But this one in particular talked about uh, Mary's midwife who declared her still a virgin after Jesus is is born, okay? And so this is really popular, grows in popularity, and stays very popular within the Catholic Church, especially 
um, because of how Mary is elevated as a really important figure, right? Well, the idea of perpetual virginity, all of a sudden virginity becomes idealized. Okay? The church is starting to really rev up its <coughs> concepts of, um, of, of what's important and what's not in terms of sexual practice. And so you have Mary who's almost, almost made a deity within the church connected to her virginity. And you have the ascetics who are practicing self-denial, right? Okay? Um, so a lot of these practices start to, they, they spark a debate within the church. And there are writers who are on both ends of the, of the spectrum. And I, I actually have this list of different dates where like different people are declaring within the church sex is good, sex is for, you know, is good for marriage, and then sex is bad, and it's of the flesh, and it's carnal, and they're going back and forth for centuries, okay? Um, so these people being labeled as heretics, especially some of these ascetic folks, it, it really does a lot to, to spotlight some of their beliefs, and some of those beliefs are celibate practices and denial of the flesh. People put a lot of emphasis in studying that and discussing it, just like what happens today in our churches, right? What are the hot topics today? We could all, we could all name them off. The, the, the primary topics, well, this is what's happening at the time. So, they start to develop this idea that sex is bodily and fleshly and therefore it's impure. And you have guys like Origen, which I misspelled his name here. It's O-R-I-G-E-N. <laughs> Origen actually was known for castrating himself in order to follow Jesus' command that if your right eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out. So Origen, because of some of his sexual desire, decides to <coughs> remove his genitalia in order to follow the gospel as closely as he can. He takes it literally. So these are the kind of ascetic practices that are coming on the scene. Now, Origen's example is known because it's so extreme, right? Not everybody's doing this kind of stuff. But it's, it's happening. People are, are diminishing the role of sexuality within relationships to the point of saying, like, this is such a bad thing. Sexual pleasure is so bad and so misleading to humanity that we even have practitioners of... of uh, Christianity who are going to cut themselves in order to follow the gospel and experience true spirituality. Do you see how the church and the views that are happening within the church are beginning to influence what people believe about sexuality? And it comes on the scene at a perfect time, right? This is right on the heels of Roman sexual practices of pr temple prostitution and things like pederasty. Things that the church is like, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And so they're going almost in the opposite direction, total extreme. It comes on the scene at a perfect time. Yes? So, you were contrasting the, the uh, ascetics uh, with the Gnostics. There were several Gnostic sects who believed that the, anything done with the body could not 
change your the purity of your spirit so anything goes that's right yes that was another form or belief system and so yeah you could do whatever you wanted to and it wouldn't it wouldn't affect things which is also a belief that you see happening within the church so people are all over the map now that's not much different than what we experience today i mean we're not trying to say that humanity's any different but i am trying to make a point here that there are markers throughout church history that can show us how we've been pushed to almost an idea of silence on this topic specifically because it was such a a heated debate for so many centuries and we're going to keep talking about different ways that we see this and i and i probably will use more extreme um examples to to give you what was the two polar polar opposites of the day were okay so augustine saint augustine who was uh was alive around the 400s origin was uh 185 to 254 and augustine is later in the in the 400 a.d time frame he comes on the scene and he says sex is only for procreation and it is a lower form of of um, a state of being than celibacy, right? Celibacy allows you to be in the presence of God better than when you're indulging in sexual pleasure. And he had a, Augustine had a really wide reaching influence. He was very well known. He was a popular writer of his time. Um, commented on a lot of things and, and, and was well respected. And so, you know, his his thinking starts to help form what's said about it. Here's a, a depiction of origin. It's interesting, you know, <laughs> he's got some Catholic robes on there. Wonder if they had those in one eighty five AD. I don't know. Um, here's a depiction of Saint Augustine. So, is born just a hundred years after Origen. It's interesting, isn't it? Let me see, make sure I didn't miss anything. Oh, um, one thing to mention, the debate over celibacy actually continues and is, is finalized by the Catholic Church in 1080. So they don't actually put the requirement on priests to be strictly celibate until about 1080 when Pope Gregory VII demanded that the clergy abandon sexual companions. Now there's some, there's some other stuff that's involved here, right? One of the debates about celibacy was that there were people who said, now wait a second, the, the papacy the leadership of the church can't be passed down by generations if we can't have intercourse and procreate. And, and they, wanted, they wanted there to be sort of a legacy of passing down the papacy. Now, if you remember from history, there was always, at this time especially, a debate between who had the most power, the pope or the, or the emperor or the king. And so the fight for power was all wrapped up in this. And finally, they say, you know what? 
This doesn't need to be passed down. Instead, it can be bought, <laughs> which is really what happened, right? We don't want to pass it down from father to son. We want it to be passed down by divine inspiration. And thus, celibacy is, is, is what, um, what they accept. Okay. All right, so, but still, the debate continues. Now, the Catholic Church gets so powerful that people don't really push against it. And, and that happens for about 500 years. Now, there's still people who at times would, would comment on different things, but it wasn't really until the Protestant Reformation that somebody major comes out on the scene and says, I'm not going to believe this, and I don't think anybody else should. And so Martin Luther in the 1500s rejects the idea that celibacy is a requirement for the priesthood. Now, he did a lot of other things, too. But this is one of them. We're, we're focusing on sex, so we're going to talk about that part of it. And uh, John Calvin, not long after Martin Luther, you've heard of Calvinism. John Calvin is the one who um, instituted Calvinism, uh, shows Bible sanctions that, Bible, that the Bible sanctions marriage for all. Okay, so these guys start commenting on it. But then the Catholic Church responds 13 years after Calvin makes this statement and says, marriage is inferior to celibacy. Okay? Any questions, thoughts, comments? Here's a picture of Martin Luther. It's very distinguished looking. Okay. So, you know, Eric, I didn't know you were going to be in here tonight. I should have just had you come up here and teach all this. So. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about sex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, following the shift from Catholicism to Protestantism, there are a number of Protestant churches that come on the scene. Here's, here's a list of them. You see uh, Lutheranism, Martin Luther, uh, Calvinism, John Calvin, the Baptist churches, um, Methodist churches. So many of these churches, although they were free from the Catholic church in terms of practice, they still maintained some traditional values that were passed down. And the debate about sex, though it's sanctioned within these churches, many of these churches, as okay and not inferior to, cel- to celibacy, there's still a very strong debate over, over the idea. It's pretty accepted that sex is primarily for procreation. So that's pretty widely accepted. Even though that was not necessarily what was taught, you know, prior to Christendom within the Jewish communities, 
that's still where people have, have settled to say, okay, we don't believe that celibacy is the only option, but we probably do believe that procreation is the primary role for sex. And I, I'm not actually commenting on that at this moment. We will talk about that more later. But nonetheless, that's where we are, okay? So when you talk about the, the prior to the Revolutionary War, when America is being colonized, and you have these different religious groups that immigrate to, um, to America, they're also, they're also coming to, to get some freedom from what's happening in Europe within the established churches of the state. Even though the Catholic Church doesn't still have the same authority that it did, there are other churches that are set in place that now have authority that as America is being colonized, that's a motivation for people to come and practice differently here. Um, one of those groups were known as the Puritans. Who's heard of the Puritans? Yeah? Okay. Some of the things that, um, that are interesting about the Puritans, uh, they, they did have Calvinist roots and they settled in New England. Um, they had very strict views on adherence to biblical practices and principles. The Puritans, in fact, instituted corporal punishment to enforce their rules, their beliefs, so much so that some of them were made laws. So things like adultery were outlawed. Homosexual intercourse was outlawed. There were all these parameters that they began to put in place in order to maintain their own belief, system of belief. Now, sex did not escape these strict laws. Okay? Um, but the Puritans believed that to to protect the community from sin was to save the community. So if someone within the community was, was acting sinfully and it was, and they were unrepentant and it was hidden, then the community was at risk from being punished by God. That was part of their system of belief. Therefore they had to place strict laws. They had to put, put strict laws in place to make sure that they're protecting the people who are a part of their, their religious movement. Now, sometimes when we refer to the Puritans in regards to sex, we actually, they, they get kind of a negative, um, we get a negative tone about it, right? It's like, uh, you know, you're such, you're, you have such Puritan beliefs about sex, right? That's like a, you're such a prude, you know? You're very strict on what you think about it. Now, they were strict, 
about things like adultery and homosexuality and other practices. But in terms of sex within marriage, it wasn't, it wasn't seen as a bad thing. There are actually writers who talk about, you know, that it fulfills a desire that, uh, and a need. Now, the Puritans still did believe that sex was for procreation. But they didn't deny themselves of sexual practice like sometimes people have implicated them to do. Yeah. No, in fact, they patterned it after the practices of Israel. Uh, so you're right. I mean, you're right on the money. That, that was something that was very much an Old Testament way of establishing a communal living. So it, sex is not evil to the Puritans, except for in the case of immorality. So there were really strict rules for sex offenders. Here's a list of some of the things that that they might have been punished with. Fines. And some of this depended on whether it was adultery or, you know, some misdemeanor level of sexual contact. Adultery would have been like felony level. Fines. Whipping. Branding, this is my favorite, symbolic execution. Does anybody know what that is? They would actually make somebody stand un, like with their head in a noose on, uh, on, like on a platform, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't hang them, but they would have to stand there for an hour with their head in a noose as if they were going to die. So, symbolic execution. I didn't even know that existed until I started studying this. You'd think something like that would come up in, you know, I don't know, church history or something. But, um, and then actual execution. Early on, they would actually, depending on the scenario, they might, they might execute somebody. So, once again, you have these... Even though the Puritans are not promoting, uh, you know, abstinence and celibacy, they are still instituting laws around sexual practice that cause people to be like really worried about what they do sexually, right? Like you got to walk the straight and narrow and perfection in this community is expected. Now, the Puritans were, were a religious group. They were not the, you know, the main religious practice, practitioners of, of the Americas at the time. But all of these 
folks have an influence on what's what people are preaching about and talking about and thinking about during this time. Okay? So when you have these extreme practices, it does have an influence. And these conversations are happening within the church. Okay? After the Revolutionary War, you really start to see some different movements, some different breakout movements that happen. Okay? One of those is the Shaker movement. Have you guys heard of the Shaker movement? Yeah? So... Do you know where they got their name, the Shakers? Yeah, so they would actually shake when they would get the Holy Spirit, right? They start shaking. I've seen you do that before. <laughs> Not because the Holy Spirit, though. Uh, they start shaking, right? They get the Holy Spirit, and then they do things like fall out and then dance and all kinds of stuff, right? So it's this high emotion, high energy kind of worship practice. And uh, these folks come on the scene as a result of, this is actually, this was the most common picture on Google images that I found on Shakers. And I I need to research more what's behind it because it looks very odd, but apparently there's a bunch of men dancing in a circle around a circle of women who have a mixed group inside of that. And then you've got people just sitting there watching like spectators. It's very weird. In the back, there's windows that the elders would watch and make sure that there was no inappropriate conduct. <laughs> Maybe you should join me up here. That's impressive that you know that. What's interesting is there have been, um, there were reports where people would say, um, they went to a shaker uh, worship time and people got naked. Okay? And so it was like, oh, the shakers, they're, they're just practicing orgies and, you know, they're just using their religion to cover their sexual desire. And that's actually not what was happening. They, they would get naked in order to, um, to show humility before God and, and it was like a practice that was really extreme that they were going to just basically demean themselves in front of the community. Okay? They would not have been practicing orgies because that was not a popular belief with the Shakers. The the Shakers were founded by Ann Lee. Uh, Ann Lee immigrated from England to the U.S. in 1770. She broke from what was known as the collegiate church. And she was very charismatic. She had lost several children. And she reported in some of her writings that sexual intercourse was very painful for her after she had lost all of her children after childbearing. Okay? So Anne Lee has this experience, this worship experience, where she gets in touch with the Holy Spirit, and she gets this sense that she needs to be celibate. And then she starts the Shaker movement, and guess what, what's one of the core tenets of the Shaker movement? <coughs> Celibacy. That's right. They were celibate. Now... This is really fascinating. I think you're going to find this interesting. They were organized into families. Now, these families were not necessarily the families they came in with. They were like 
organized into families, given a wife, given children. They would actually take orphans in and put them in homes. That's how the Shaker movement saw church growth is to bring orphans in and to get new converts. But once people were converted to the Shaker movement, they were no longer allowed to have sex. And these families, the husband and wife in these families were not allowed to have sex. Okay. So the Shaker movement grows pretty quickly in, into the mid 1800s up to about 6,000 members in 60 communities from Maine to Indiana. Now, that doesn't, I mean, we've got churches in America today that are 6,000 6, members. But back then, that's a much bigger number. I don't know what the equivalent to, to today would be. But it's not like people don't know who the Shakers are, right? People know the Shakers movement. They know what they believe. What's that? Two left. Did you just look that up? Really? 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 So I would be interested to hear from y'all, maybe not right now because I don't have a lot of time left, but I would be interested to hear from y'all what their practices today look like in comparison to, do they still organize, just real quick, do they still organize them in families? There's just two of them. There's only two shakers left. Period. Two people? Two people. Yeah. Yeah. So, was there anybody in your community that you went to? Yeah, we, we decided to <laughs> <laughs> We tried it for a while. Okay. You don't believe the These are maybe quasi-shaker. Yeah. Wow, I would love to hear more about y'all's experience with that. Yeah. Do they still believe in celibacy? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We went to one of their little chapels places where they hold the worship services and they have the windows up there. They did a demo of a worship service. I recorded it. Yeah. Videoed it. Hmm. How many people were there? There were more spectators. Yeah. Very interesting. Wow. There's a nice Go visit the Shakers. Okay. Man, I want to hear about that a lot. Okay. Um, okay, so the idea of, of um, celibacy was it, it, it stemmed from the, it became the theological view that in the Genesis account, that the carnal inter- that uh, that the fall was actual carnal intercourse engaged in out of its proper time and season. So that's how they defended their view of celibacy. So they believed that, like the Eve eating the fruit and Adam eating the fruit, that that was a metaphor for actual sexual intercourse out of its proper time. Okay. Um, and, and within the Shaker community, sexual intercourse was, was punishable by excommunication from the community. Okay. Here's a picture of Ann Lee. She doesn't look very happy. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 
just curious how they were able to grow. Like, how did they get 6,000 people to agree to that? <laughs> what was the appeal? That is an excellent question. They had, I, I do know that, well, I don't feel like I know enough to comment on it. I could speculate. That the, the community took care of everybody. Yeah. Right. So whenever things were tough, people would oftentimes would go and join them until they got to nice weather where they could go and, and, and survive on their own. Mm. I know that they were taking in a lot, they were taking in lots of orphans. And additionally, this hyper emotional worship practice was very um, appealing to people. I mean, the, you know, the sense that um, they were getting worked up and people that allowed themselves to experience this worship time would have felt sort of an ecstatic sense of, of being outside of themselves and kind of this hypnotic trance state. I don't know if you've ever read any of the accounts of people, of the Shakers being in those experiences, but that's kind of, that was some of the appeal were those worship practices. And the community took care of everything. They, they would, um, they worked together, they grew crops together. I mean, everything was, was, um, was self, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-contained. Yeah, exactly. All right. Know who this is? Joseph Smith. Telling of his meeting with Gabriel. Um, Okay, so the, the Mormon movement was founded in 1830 by a very young, charismatic Joseph Smith. And, um... It's in some of the um, articles that I've read and some of the books that I've read said that uh, Mormonism was actually a perfect fit for some of the Puritan descendants, that it was its strict adherence and beliefs in um, very definitive ways of practicing were appealing to people. Okay, So just a brief history on this. Uh, Joseph Smith said that he was visited by Gabriel and that he was given golden tablets. He was actually shown where the tablets were, I think is right. And, uh, and I think he had to dig them up because there are people that make pilgrimages to the place where he, he dug them up under a pile of stones. Okay. Um, so, but on these golden tablets was the revelation of Hebrew descendants who migrated to North America around 600 BC. Okay? So the names of these people were the Lamanites and the Nephites. And the idea was that Jesus visited these tribes somewhere, it's debated whether it was like in the 40 days between his resurrection. And his ascension, some Mormons believe that it was just after his ascension that he went and visited, but it was sometime around that that period. Okay, and they and so Mormons, Joseph Smith, his message was that when Jesus returns, he's going to return to Jerusalem and Missouri. Okay, he'll be he'll be coming to those two places. Now. 
Joseph Smith, later after he had delivered this revelation, he also had an additional revelation. It's about 13 years. I think it was in uh, 1843 that polygamy was now to be instituted within the Mormon church. Interestingly enough, Joseph Smith at this time is also developing some of his views about heaven and what causes somebody to go to heaven and what causes somebody to have status in heaven. And so the, some of the first stuff that comes out is we need to make the, the remnant or the, the last of the Lamanites and the Nephites uh, a, a pure group and, and uh, intermarry them, right? And bring them in and, and purify them, okay? Now, then he starts to write about how marriage is the primary means to attain a higher status in heaven, you might have secular marriages that didn't happen within the Mormon church. And in that case, if you were converted to Mormonism, then you could have, you know, so, uh, what did they call it? The, uh, the, you could become a ministering angel, right? But if you had multiple marriages within the Mormon church, then that would help you to attain patriarch status in heaven. And they called those celestial marriages. So this is, this is now the Mormon view about marriage. And I know that this is specifically more about marriage rather than sex, but it does... Obviously, in, it, it does have implications of people having intercourse with multiple partners, right? And there being religious groups who are defending that position during the day. And so what's going to happen with other folks? Just to back up, so it was men having relations with multiple people. Yes. Polygamy was only for men. That's right. That's correct. Yes. Exactly. That's when the Mormons moved to Salt Lake City. That's right. From Missouri. And from New York to Missouri. It's interesting. One of our, one of the, uh, the leaders of the Church of Christ movement, I believe, I believe it was him, Alexander Campbell, actually responds to some of what Joseph Smith is propagating at this time. That was after Sidney Rigdon left the Church of Christ to go to the Mormon Church, though. Oh. Okay. I'm glad you're here. I mean, that adds a lot of color to what we're talking about. But John, uh, but um, Joseph Campbell starts to comment on this, and, it, and he says it's really interesting how perfectly the Book of Mormon addresses all of the um, theological issues of the time, which is really fascinating, without uh, creating any kind of discrepancy. So... Where are we? We've got one minute. Holy cow. Okay. Um, this is a picture of Jesus in North America around 34 AD. <laughs> really? This, so this is like a pop. Okay, great. That's the 
I didn't realize how much Joseph Smith looks like Bradley Cooper. If there's a if there's a movie, Bradley Cooper needs to play Joseph Smith. Then Bradley Cooper needs to play Joseph Smith in the musical. Okay, so just just real quick, I know people need to go get kids, but this is not a complete representation of the American view of sex, right? It's just some of the extremes that existed in the culture. But the idea that all this variety, all these variety of views are occurring within the development of 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 this nation, right? They are not in isolation to what happened for centuries in the Roman Catholic Church and then on into the Protestant movement. Even today, you can hear echoes of all of that in the system of belief that we have and the silence of the church in these areas. When these topics were so widely debated, and, and they became so violently debated in some ways that people decided, you know what, it's just better not to talk about it. So the church is working away from, from uh, empowering people to have healthy sexual relationships within marriage and discouraging it and saying it's bad and it's, o- it's only about carnal pleasure. And if you're doing that for anything other than procreation... <laughs> which is kind of still not as good as being celibate, but we'll be okay with it. But if, you're, if, if it's anything outside of that, then it's bad and it's dirty and it's sinful and it's impure. And so the church just works its way, it, it gets way away from any of the concepts that we see Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 talk about when God institutes sex. And these Judeo-Christian values really remain in place and have a stronghold on people until the sexual revolution happens. We are going to talk about that, but I want to make this point and then I'm going to let everybody leave. The sexual revolution wasn't just some hippie thing that happened. It was, it was an answer to some of the constraints that people felt as a result of thousands of years of this kind of oppression that people thought, you know what? Like, I'm not sure if that's true. And the world offered an answer that the church didn't have a response to. All right. See you next week.